0: Well, we're going to continue our study of the letter of Paul to Titus, so you can turn there already. Uh, We're going to be looking specifically at the first few verses, uh, one and a half to be specific, after Paul's salutation. So turn to Titus chapter 1, and we are going to be looking at verses 5 and 6. Is my sound coming through here? It is? Okay. Just wanting to make sure that it's coming through. Okay. Okay. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 6, and the, the uh, title of our sermon this morning is called From Chaos to Order. Paul writes this as he begins this first main section in his letter to Titus. He writes, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, if any man is above reproach, Husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not found fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. A very significant section in this letter to Titus as Paul immediately launches into matters of first priority, and we're going to take some time over the coming weeks to go through this section because of its crucial importance for the Apostle Paul, its importance for Titus in that setting there in Crete, as well as its important importance for us today in our context as well. But this morning, as I said, I want to look at really the first verse and a half of this section and look at this in terms of why it is so critical in Paul's mind to launch out on, on this discussion about elders immediately after his salutation, the first one and a half verses of this main section. And just to recap what we've covered so far, in verses 1 to 4, we have one of Paul's longer salutations, the, the third longest in all of his letters, and in that salutation, Paul reminded Titus and us of Paul's apostolic authority, the purpose for which he was appointed as an apostle, his obligation to relay the commandments of God. And as well, in that salutation, Paul has just expressed his heartfelt desire that Titus and all who would read these words, all who would receive the teaching that was passed on to Titus, Paul has expressed his heartfelt desire that Titus would receive and, and experience God's fullness of grace and peace in his life. Immediately after stating that, Paul moves to matters of first priority. His priority is addressed in these first verses of the main section, verses 5 to 9, but is summarized most succinctly in the verses that we are going to cover this morning in that section in verse 5 and part of verse 6. And as we look at those foundational words that set us on the right trajectory, we're going to notice these two important uh, truths that arise out of Paul's expression of his priority. Number one, we're going to see the church's great need, and we'll see that in the first half of verse 5, and then secondly, we'll see the, the, the grand solution of God, God's grand solution in the second half of verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6. So let's jump immediately into that and look at the church's great need. Paul writes this in the first half of verse 5. He says, for this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains. As I said, immediately after that salutation, where usually there is some kind of expression of thanksgiving, Paul instead jumps right to the point with a reminder to Titus of why he was in Crete. Now, the purpose for Titus' existence there, his ministry there in Crete, will be described in the clause that follows. You can see the word that that is, a, that is found there, and we're going to get to that in just a moment. But first, we have to look at that brief introduction, for this reason I left you in Crete. The urgency of this statement, this reminder, doesn't suggest on Titus's part that there was any resistance This doesn't suggest that Titus was losing sight of the ministry to which he had been entrusted. Instead, what it reflects is Paul's great concern and the difficulty that Titus was and certainly would experience as he fulfilled his ministry. This was a matter of very, very utmost importance. There was a great need, and Paul begins by reminding Titus of its seriousness, now, just a few words about Crete. The island of Crete is the fifth largest island in the Mediterranean Sea. Today it, it belongs to the country of Greece. It's part of Greek territory, but you can see it's it's to the southeast of the country of Greece, to the southwest of Turkey. It's a long slice of land. It's narrow. It measures around 160 miles long at its at its more shorter width, it's about seven miles, although it measures even up to 37 miles wide. But you can see it there on the slide. It's a, a long sliver of land, and it was, and it is marked by harsh mountains. It's a, quite a mountainous territory. And in Paul's day, it was covered with many small villages. A little bit before Paul's time, Homer, the, the novelist, wrote this. He said that, Gre- that Crete was known as the hundred-citied island, an island out there in the Mediterranean with all of these cities, these tiny cities, these villages spread out across the island. Now, the island, as you can imagine, being where it was located, was important for navigation and for maritime trade. It had two important seaports, and now you may be making some connections here with some other places, and or one other place in the New Testament that relates to this. It had two important ports. One was named Phoenix, and the other was called Fair Haven. And they were on the south central part of the island and the south western part of the island. And if you can picture for just a moment where Crete was in the Mediterranean and can picture all the maritime travel that would go from the eastern world, including Israel and Alexandria and Egypt, to the west, particularly Italy and Rome, you can see in in your mind that, that the island of Crete would have a strategic importance in terms of shipping. One commentator describes Crete's importance this way. He says, quote, this meant that it was also a place where, the most, where most of the current philosophies and religions would pass through at one point or another, undoubtedly leaving their marks. Unquestionably, it would have been just the sort of strategic location where Paul would wish his gospel to find a foothold. Now, as I said, we know about Crete a little bit in terms of the New Testament, not just by this letter of Paul to Titus, but because of a different, a different episode in, in New Testament history, and that was back during Paul's voyage to Rome as he traveled from Caesarea Maritima, there in the land of Israel on the coast of the Mediterranean, all the way to Rome. Paul spent a little bit of time here in this island on this island of Crete I'll look at this in just a moment but you can mark down already this is found in Acts chapter 27 in particular but what we read of in Titus and the kind of ministry that Paul is talking about in Titus chapter 1 verse 6 and then what follows as well indicates that even though Paul was on the island of Crete on his voyage from Caesarea Maritima to Rome, he did not have the kind of ministry in Crete as is implied by the letter. So, what we read of in the book of Acts and Paul's exposure to Crete doesn't fit in terms of the ministry that the letter to Titus describes. For one thing, although Paul was given a considerable amount of freedom, even in his captivity, Even during his voyage, he was given freedom to consult with friends and and have a little bit of freedom when they would stop at ports. Nonetheless, Paul was still a man in captivity. He was still under arrest and had not been yet pronounced innocent. And so the kind of ministry described in Titus doesn't fit with the kind of limitations Paul would have even during the, the stay that he had on that voyage to Rome. Moreover, we don't read that Titus was with Paul on that voyage to Rome. And so the idea of Paul leaving Titus on Crete doesn't fit with what we get from Acts chapter 27. Now, we could turn to Acts chapter 27 for just a moment to get the context for Paul's first visit to this island. You can read all the way from chapter 27, verse 1 to For example, verse 15, I'm just going to read a few verses. You can see the map on the screen. I've highlighted the portion that leads up to his time in Crete. Let me begin reading in verse 27, and you can just look at the the map, and you can see these different places that Luke names as he describes this voyage from Caesarea Maritima to Rome. Verse 7 of Acts 27 says that when we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived off Nidus. You can see Nidus is in the the southwest portion of Turkey on the coast of the Mediterranean there. When we had with difficulty arrived off Nidus, since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone. Now what is Paul referring to, or Luke referring to? The ideal would have been to go straight across from Nidus to Corinth to cross on what's called an Isthmus and then to carry on to Rome. The problem, however, was that they were in the fall portion of the year, and the fall brought with it very strong winds from the northeast, which prohibited them. It did not enable them to sail to the northwest Instead, they were forced to go south. And they believed, the, the captain of the boat believed that if they could get to the island of Crete, they would have shelter from the northeasterly winds and would be able to go on further and then sail from there on to Rome. Well, let me keep reading here. After they get to that area of Salmone, which is on the very eastern portion of Crete, Luke writes that with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens. That was one of the main port uh, cities there on Crete, on the very central south portion of the island, near which was the city of Lassia. And when considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them And said to them, men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of cargo and the ship, but of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor there in Fair Havens was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached the decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix, that other harbor in Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. And when a moderate wind, a moderate south wind came up, so now the wind is from Africa, they supposed that they had attained their purpose. They weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete close inshore. But before long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind and so on and so forth, and then they were unable to dock at Phoenix, but driven further south into the Mediterranean. That was every sailor's worst nightmare, but that's what happened. Now, there's a reference there in the text in in Acts 27 to the fast, and that's a reference to the fast that would happen at the Day of Atonement, and that was usually in late September or early October. And that time was the time when maritime travel would be very dangerous in the Mediterranean Sea because of those winds from the northeast. They the captain was noticed that or knew that he was losing his window of opportunity because once you got to November, all big ship kind of of, of travel in the Mediterranean shut down until late February. It's just way too dangerous. So they decided to risk it, and Luke records the rest of that in the uh, the final chapter of uh, chapters of, of Acts, chapter 27 and, and 28. But what we read from Luke's account is that Paul only spent a short amount of time there in that port city, in that city called Lycia, and then continues on the voyage. It wasn't enough time, and neither was Titus with them, to... F- to to correspond with what we read of in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Now, some commentators have said, well, maybe what Paul means when he says, I left Titus, or I left you there in Crete, that the verb left actually means to send, or to dispatch, or to assign. So don't take it directly, literally, but metaphorically. Some commentators will seek to do that, but there is no way or no reason to interpret the verb, I left, in that sense at all. It's not how Paul uses that verb. Therefore, Paul's ministry in Crete, when he says, I left you in Crete, it must have come at a different time. And that's the obviously the big question. He talks about this. He says, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains... Obviously, that has to fit in somewhere, and our best and most standard and well-attested answer to that was that this ministry in Crete isn't covered in the book of Acts. It actually happens after the book of Acts is finished. If you read the very last two verses of the book of Acts, you read that Paul was in prison in Rome under house arrest waiting for a verdict to his appeal, And what we gather from the letters of 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy is that Paul had been then released after that imprisonment, and then his ministry in Crete took place after that imprisonment. We call it Paul's fourth missionary journey. We won't get into this now, but the best way to understand Paul's fourth missionary journey was that it was a journey that was concentrated on the churches and the regions around what we call the Aegean Sea. So let me just put a map up here that suggests in a very simple way what could have happened after Paul's release from his first Roman imprisonment. He leaves Rome, perhaps goes immediately back to Crete because he had spent some time there on that that journey, that voyage. And when he was under captivity on his way to, to the appeal before Caesar goes back to Crete, does his ministry there, leaves at that time Titus there, and then goes back to the province of Asia, spends time in Ephesus and other places around the Aegean Sea, both in terms of Asia as well as Macedonia and Achaia. In fact, a very interesting statement we find in the end of this letter. The end of this letter is found in, it found a statement, Titus 3 verse 12 Paul's wrapping things up, and he says to Titus, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Where's Nicopolis? Nicopolis is on the western shore of, of modern-day Greece, the west, western part of what we call the province of Macedonia in, in terms of the language of Paul's day, Paul could have been writing from Nicopolis and sending the letter to Crete and saying to Titus, after you've done what you're supposed to do, come and join me there. Now with that said, let's go back to our text in Titus chapter 1 verse 5. Paul says, for this reason I left you in Crete. And so what is the great need for leaving Titus there in Crete? Why would that be so important? And the answer is found in that statement that follows. That you would set in order what remains. There was unfinished business. The churches really were not yet churches. In fact, when we look at that verb, to set in order... The verb to set in order has the idea of bringing something to completion, but it has the added nuance of correcting something that's lacking. We have to realize ministry is never done. Paul's not saying that Titus could somehow complete the Great Commission as a whole and then leave Crete. That's not what he's talking about. Instead, by his use of this verb, Paul is indicating that there is a fundamental lack in those. Fellowships, in those congregations there in those different cities on on the island of Crete that needed immediate prioritized attention. You have to set it in order, implying that there was a level of disorder, a level of, of, of a lack of structure. And he says it in this word he says, Set in order what remains referring to those things which still needed doing or those things that had been left unfinished. And they're not only unfinished, but they're in an inappropriate state. It's not something that you could say, well, it's okay, they'll survive. It's not best, they'll grow out of it. No, there is a fundamental lack that these churches on the island of Crete experienced. Now, this was certainly a difficult task for Titus, we've looked at this verse before, but if you look at chapter 1, verse 12, we realize that the Cretans had a very notable reputation. Paul has said here in Titus 1.12, quoting one of their own prophets, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and then in verse 13, this testimony is true. Paul takes a statement from a, a, a poet, Uh, not a God-fear by any stretch, but a poet who actually, despite his paganism, said something that was true. And Paul grabs that statement and incorporates it onto the page of inspired Scripture. This was a difficult people to deal with. There was a lot of disorderliness, chaos. And Paul says to Titus, remember this. Remember your mission, Titus, You must set in order what remains. You must correct the lack. This is essential for the churches as churches. As we look at that, let's draw a couple of observations before we move to the the second part of of our study this morning. First of all, understand this. the, The default position is chaos. The default position is chaos, we live in a cursed world, we live in, in our flesh, and the natural position is always chaos. It's not that order is found and then people mess it up. It's the reverse. It's chaos that needs to be brought into order, and this order is to be represented in the church. It's to be represented in the church. Secondly, contrary to popular myth, the absence of structure and order does not make life better. It never makes life better. And why? We can even read in 1 Corinthians 14 that God is a God of order. And when we read his word, we see that God is a God of structure, and he delegates authority, and it very much is crucial to flourishing in this world. Absence of order does not make life better. And it mattered, thirdly, a whole lot to Paul to bring order to those who had embraced the gospel. This was part of the Great Commission, not just to see them embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, not just to see them baptized there was more to it. And part of the training of them as disciples of Jesus Christ included in that very great commission the establishment of order among them. There needed to be order. And fourthly, churches, we could say this, churches are not churches without the order prescribed by God through his apostles. And we can see that there in this little statement that Paul makes when he says, for this reason, Titus, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains. Now, that's the need. That is the great need, the church's great need. Let's look now at God's grand solution. Second half of verse 5 in the beginning of verse 6, Paul says, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, If any man is above reproach. He begins with this second verb and a point. And with this second verb to a point, Paul describes in a special way how order would be brought into the church. When he says, and a point, it's not that Paul had two or that Titus had two separate missions. One was to establish order order, the other one was to appoint elders. It's not that they're the exact same thing, because Paul in this letter is going to describe other ways that order will be brought into the churches. But with this second verb, we do see a main aspect of setting an order. Paul immediately goes into this discussion of elders because in God's grand design, his gift to the church in bringing order and flourishing is through elders, is through the appointing of elders. The verb here, elder, or excuse me, to appoint, the verb means to set one thing over another, to set one thing over another. More specifically, the verb is often used to refer to the establishment of someone in a certain position of authority. So, for example, when we look at its use in other places in the New Testament, we see that it is used sometimes to refer to the establishment of one of the slaves in a household as the administrator of the entire household. You can see that in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. In the book of Hebrews, the verb is used several times to refer to the appointment of a chief priest, of a high priest. The verb is used for that. So it has the idea of assigning someone with a special office, a formal set of responsibilities. And that is found further defined for us in our own text with this word elders. And appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Those who are appointed as God's grand solution to the inherent chaos and disorder, God's grand solution, is this office, is this group called elders. Now, what does Paul mean by the the use of that term elders? It's the term presbyteros. You've probably recognized from that you get the term presbyterian or presbytery. There's, there's There's a connection there. In the Greek that term presbyteros essentially describes age, old age. But here it is used to refer to an office of leadership within the church that is focused on a particular level of experience or maturity. Now it's a concept that was taken from the Greek world. It was rooted in Jewish life. We first find this term in the Greek used to refer to the leaders of the gent- or of the, the Jewish nation. It was used even to, to refer to the members of the Sanhedrin. You can see that, for example, in the book of Matthew, in the book of Acts, that the presbyteroi, the, the elders, were the members of the Sanhedrin, the governing body over the people of Israel. But that term then was incorporated by the apostles' to refer to the kind of governance that the church would have. The church was to be governed by a a kind of leadership that is particularly described as mature. It's mature. It speaks of stature. It speaks of respectability. It speaks of experience. And so Paul uses this term as he As he instructs Titus and reminds Titus of what he had spoken to him when they were together, that Titus was to be God's instrument in meeting the great need of the churches in Crete by finding the right men for the task. Now, just a little side note on this this term elder, we can use and see and understand as a synonym for the term overseer. Sometimes in older translations, the term bishop. And we're going to get to that uh, as we look in this letter. Paul's going to use that term overseer. But we can see that these terms are really synonymous terms. They're used, however, to emphasize different aspects of the same man. So for example, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Titus, your job is to bring order to the church through appointing presbyter, appointing elders. In verse 7, look down to verse 7 for just a moment. He switches from the use of the term presbyteros to the use of the term episkopos, the term overseer. And he describes the character of the overseer. You see, Paul had no problem moving back and forth between these two terms, and the reason he does so is to emphasize different aspects of the same man. The term elder, as I've already noted, when he uses that, his emphasis is on maturity, is on experience, this kind of sobriety that comes with length of life that is so important in governance. When he uses the term overseer, he is emphasizing more of the function of that same man, what that man is to do. The idea is of guardianship, of to be watchful over from within, and we'll define that term in greater detail when we get to verse 7. Jerome, one of the early church fathers, as he was dealing with this text, even said this this passage. Titus chapter 1, verses 5, 6, and 7, this passage, quote, clearly proves that a bishop, an overseer, and a presbyter, an elder, are the same. The same individual are, is being spoken of here. We could even go to other texts, like we could go to 1 Peter, for example, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where Peter uses different titles to refer to the same individual. Another one to go to that's very helpful on this is Acts chapter 20, verses 17 all the way to verse 28, where Paul, when he addresses the elders of the church, chapter 20, verse 17, Luke says he specifically addressed, he called the elders presbyteroi, the same word as we find in 1, verse 5 of Titus. But later on in his address, Paul says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, notice the function that's there, among which the Holy Spirit has made you, what? Overseers, episcopoi. The idea of being a, a one who guards. So in Paul's mind, these are the same men. It's not two different kinds of leadership structure in the church. It's one that will be called by different names. Now notice also in this, that God's grand solution to the disorder that is inherent, even among new converts, even among members of the body of Christ, God's grand solution to the disorder is not just a mature man, but is a plurality of them. It's a plurality of them, and it's very important to catch this. Paul uses a specific grammatical construction here to show that elders, plural, were to be appointed by Titus in every city. Now, when you read the English, it may not necessarily come out that directly, but in the original, it is very obvious that it's not one elder for each city, it is elders, plural, for each city. And understand this, that in that day, they didn't have the first Baptist church and the second Baptist church of this city and that city, it was just one church in every city. And so in each church, Titus was called upon to appoint plural elders. So if you just look at the map, let's just assume for just a moment that those red dots are all the different churches that were planted in that hundred city island. And in every place, Titus was to appoint a plurality elders, plural, in every city. And this strategy of appointing a plurality of mature men to bring order to each church was not just something new that came up later in Paul's ministry on his fourth missionary journey. It's important to note that this is no different than what Paul was doing on his first missionary journey. It's interesting to note this. On his fourth missionary journey here, this would have been 8062 to 8065, the time during which Paul ministered in Crete, left, left Titus there, and then writes to Titus, somewhere between 8062 and 65. This is his fourth missionary journey. Paul is coming near to the end of his life. A lot has already happened in the life of the church. The ministry there that we're talking about here in, in this letter to Titus is in Crete, and he says, appoint elders, plural, in every city. Elders in every city. But let's look at his first missionary journey. Let's notice that the philosophy of ministry, the ministry strategy of Paul had not changed one iota. So you look at the first missionary journey, and we put this around 47 to 48. So about 17 years or so before he's in Crete. So a lot of time has passed, almost two decades between the first missionary journey of Paul and the fourth. We have an important text that's going to refer to the churches that were planted in a totally different context called Galatia. And we see an important verse. Write this down. Acts chapter 14, really verses 21 to 23. But I want to draw your attention to just one statement there in verse 23 where Paul, where Luke describes Paul and Barnabas as having, quote, appointed elders, plural, for them in every church. The same construction is used there. On Paul's very first missionary journey, you have the idea of a plurality of mature men being established in every local church to make it a true church. That was part of Paul's ministry right from the very beginning. It wasn't a progression. It wasn't an evolution in his ministry philosophy. He always believed and always practiced that what God's plan is for the church is to be governed, to be brought from disorder into order under the oversight, under the wise, mature leadership of a plurality of men. Now, let's go back for just a moment to that text. There's something more that is God's grand design for the church, something that is crucial in bringing the church from disorder into order. Not only is there to be plurality of elders, but there is to be a plurality of morally qualified elders. Notice the very last part of this section. He says, appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, If any man is above reproach, he moves immediately from referring to the group as a whole that was to lead the church to becoming very personal and individual, emphasizing the kind of examination that was to be applied in the process of putting this group together for every church. Now, the verses that follow all the way to verse 9 are going to describe, and we're going to go through this in detail. Those verses from verse 6 to 9 will describe various spheres of life in, in which that, that candidate was to be examined to see whether he met the qualifications and whether he would be one who would bring the churches from disorder into order. But there is an important phrase here that is is that that is the umbrella term for everything that will follow from the, the middle of verse 6 all the way to verse nine, and it's the term above reproach. Once again, Jerome called this virtue. He said, all the virtues are comprehended in this one term. It's the foundational quality. It's the umbrella term that envelops everything else. If churches are to be brought from disorder into order, they must be ruled by men, they must be ruled by a plurality of them, but here is the, the climax of that. They must be ruled by a plurality of qualified men, morally qualified. Let's look at that term for just a moment here as we close. The term above reproach, what does it mean? It means to have a life against which others cannot bring a charge. It actually comes from a, a verb which means to bring charges against or to accuse, but it's negated. It, so it has the idea of of living a life that is irreproofable irrepru- or irreputable. It has the idea that you can't make charges stick. That's the kind of standard that Paul has here for these churches. This is such a strong term that it's used, for example, in Colossians chapter one, verse twenty-two, to describe what all people will be when we are brought before God the Father. Paul says that he has now reconciled you, Christ has, in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before the Father holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That word blameless is the same word we have here. Now certainly in that context in 1 Corinthians, Paul is describing what will be true of all of us one day in the absolute sense that our great accuser will no longer have any, any grounds in which to accuse us. Our consciences will no longer accuse us of anything. One another, we will no longer accuse one another of anything. We will stand holy and blameless and beyond reproach in front of the Father in that glorified state. But that's not what Paul is referring to. He's not saying here that you look for these kinds of perfected men who have already achieved glory, and have them as elders. No, the term is used here in a more simple sense to refer to a quality of life that, that, that does not have a stickiness to it that, that keeps the accusations when they come. He uses this in of Deacons, for example, in 1 Timothy 3, verse 10, These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Paul is saying, even with deacons, their lives are to be examined. In a a way, throw all kinds of stuff against them and see if anything sticks. If it does, they're not ready to be deacons. Paul uses that same idea here And he says that the kind of men that are part of God's solution to the chaos and the disorder are men of this great moral testimony. It's interesting to note here that when Paul begins to describe what's needed, he does not look to intellect. He does not look for academic acumen, for educational background, He does not even highlight of first importance administrative abilities and skills, though those things are part of it. He doesn't look at rhetorical abilities, but as Paul begins this list, as he chooses his term that will define all others, he begins with a moral quality. One commentator said this, organization has its place in building up the kingdom of God, but virtues that conform to the nature of God take higher priority. Certainly a good statement, and we're going to see that work itself out and these other qualities that follow, that that Paul recognizes that for there to be order brought to the church, there must be indeed intellectual capacities and skills of administration, and so on and so forth, but all of this under the umbrella of of an irreproachable life, and that is a very, very high standard. Richard Baxter, in his work, Reformed Pastor, summarizes well why this is such an important quality. He says this, quote, It is not likely that the people will much regard the doctrine of such men when they see that they do not live as they preach. They will think that he doth not mean as he speaks if he does not live As he speaks, they will hardly believe a man that seemeth not to believe himself. Another statement is by Archibald Alexander, the Presbyterian of the 1800s, who said this, Example speaks louder than precept, and living practical religion has a much greater effect on mankind than argument or eloquence. Very high standard and brought forth in very vivid way by the apostle paul to titus just a few final observations here as we close our time first of all note this god's solution to the disorder is mature men mature men uh, that is god's solution that is the recipe that he has prescribed and has been true of the church since the very beginning of its existence, and that will not change. God's solution to the disorder is mature men. Secondly, God's solution to the disorder is a plurality of men, that there is strength and order in an abundance of counselors, an abundance of mature men, and that apart from this, a church can hardly be called a church if it is not governed by this plurality, this biblical paradigm for church life. And then thirdly, God's solution to the disorder is godly men. You might have men who have lived a long time. You might have men in a plurality who have lived a long time. But if you don't have this third component of God's solution, then we can say, too, that is irreproachability. And as we move forward in this text, we're going to see what that irreproachability looks like in detail. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you have not left us in disorder. We do confess to you that in our lives, the most difficult of times arise when we are in chaos. Instead, you have programmed into the Great Commission, this solution to our need in a very practical level of bringing our lives of spiritual and emotional disorder into order through the church, and particularly through a kind of government that is to be in the church. And we thank you that your design is that in that context there would be flourishing as we continue to study this letter, particularly in the weeks to come, as we look at what it means to be irreproachable, we do pray that you would make that the desire of all of us, that we would long to see your churches across this world filled with men like this, and that we would pray even for our own church, that it would continue to experience your blessing of men who are mature and a plurality of them, and those who are irreproachable. We thank you for this, and we ask for greater understanding, and we do so in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.